Hello, and welcome to Learning to Fly, science for the Anthropocene podcast brought to you from the Lancaster Environment Centre at Lancaster University. I'm David Tyfield, and I'm the Professor of Sustainable Transitions and Political Economy at LEC. And this episode is not, like most of them so far, a conversation. Like the first episode, this is going to be just me talking. Because in this particular case, I felt there were some really important issues, some really important ideas that needed clarifying, and needed clarifying urgently regarding a science for the Anthropocene and the agenda of this podcast. It's urgent because of recent developments which have shown just how much is at stake with this agenda, but also where greater clarity, I think, is needed in order to show what this podcast stands for and not for and who it stands with and not with. And what follows, therefore, are personal views and should only be attributed as such. So this is going to be, I hope, a short monologue kind of op-ed that, on the negative side, aims to clearly distinguish the position argued for here regarding science for the Anthropocene on the issues that we'll be talking about, which are the issues of the relations between politics and science or power and knowledge, from seemingly similar and widespread positions, and then more positively to touch to and point to and touch on what a reconstructive agenda for such a science looks like instead. And this, I hope, will set up the agenda for the exciting list of guests we've got lined up uh, through the first half of 2024, where we're going to be focusing on two particular themes going forward. One is to unpack in more detail what is meant by the key term of phrenesis, or strategic ethical wisdom. But secondly, to look at another key issue on the Anthropocene side of the planetary boundaries. Back to today, though. What is so urgent? I'm sure all listeners to this podcast will be aware of just how bad the news has got around the world through 2023. It seems, to me at least, that we are entering a dark period of war, in fact, with civilization itself at stake. And perhaps that wouldn't be an issue for this podcast, though perhaps it might be. It's relevant to the Anthropocene, after all. But the need to talk about this arises because of what has presented itself as the central role and responsibility of science and higher education in this predicament. And by that, I mean that some of the most disgraceful scenes that have happened in the history of at least Anglophone universities have happened over the last few months. Now, I'm deliberately going to say as little as possible on this because this is a podcast about science, science for the Anthropocene. And my personal views on these issues, and they are complex and protracted issues of politics, are both irrelevant here and also likely of no significance either. But in recent months, we have seen on university campuses across the world how a gruesome massacre, an orgy of premeditated violence and hatred, elicited 
not statements of compassion and condolence and sobriety or even outrage, but of jubilation. And then, adding insult to injury, the defence of those reactions by university leaders. Now, that is all I'm going to say on those particular issues specifically. But understandably, this has led to a surge of criticism and concern specifically directed at science and higher education from across the centre of the political spectrum. That is, those broadly defensive of a liberal education for a liberal society. And the primary target of that criticism is what brings us back to Science for the Anthropocene. Because it focuses on, in particular, the blame for these issues, these disgusting scenes, as being the widespread conflation of power and knowledge in the minds of those in higher education. And indeed, with a specific figure pointed out as the major protagonist behind all this, by which I mean the now deceased French philosopher Michel Foucault. So the reason we need to talk about this today for Science of the Anthropocene is that the agenda that has been laid out by me and by other speakers on this series regarding a Science of the Anthropocene, regarding phrenesis, seems to make very similar points to those that are being criticised here regarding the relationship between power and knowledge or the tight relationship between power and knowledge. But I want to say straight up that I get these criticisms and I agree, or at least I agree mostly, and that's what we need to unpick a little. I don't agree regarding the characterization of Michel Foucault, in fact, at least as I read him, though perhaps those who use his name, the Foucauldians, are deserving of this criticism. And more importantly, regarding what now to do about this, is that there is no going back and putting the genie back in the bottle of people seeing the relationship between science and politics. Science and politics and their relations are now just irretrievably problematised. And this because there is in fact a crucial truth which can be empirically verified again and again when, wherever one looks about the impossibility of their strict separation. And this is an insight that is both descriptive in terms of we need that understanding uh, to explain how science and technology and society have actually co-evolved. And then we need it normatively in order to understand how they should be understood, how the relationship between science and politics should be understood if we want to do it better. So let's go straight to the heart of the matter and focusing on the science for the Anthropocene. Consider arguably the strongest case for a greater fusion or blurring of science and politics 
by which I mean our concern here of climate and ecological emergency. There are growing calls from scientists, both natural and social scientists, who are understandably appalled and impatient about the continuing inaction on these unprecedented, seemingly existential issues, despite ever greater and more definitive and more alarming declarations from the science. The facts, it seems, are definitely not moving people. Indeed, they are moving people. They are changing public opinion and political parties, but often against the science. And not just regarding science of climate and uh, ecological crisis, but also regarding associated issues, especially insofar as they lead to implications with immediate effects on daily life. The obvious example here is the science of air quality. So for many climate activists and actively concerned scientists, many of whom feel they have been led by the science to increasingly radical positions on the climate action necessary in response, the obvious lesson from all of this is that the attempt to convince the public and the current power structures of society to change with the facts has failed definitively. Rather, the only possible lesson from this is not only that such a purely cognitive science-based strategy was always likely too weak and anemic to achieve what it set out to do, but also that the object and undeniable failure, the refusal of society to learn from the facts, can only be explained in terms of another, now seemingly scientifically proven insight about the nature of society. Namely, that it is currently structured in such a way as to be intrinsically hostile, or rather dominated by power centres and interests that are intrinsically hostile, to the acceptance in practice of the insights of science regarding the extent of planetary crisis. In other words, for the activist, ecology-concerned scientist, the evidence is readily interpreted as overwhelming now that the power structures of society and so indeed of contemporary science too are simply bad. And evidence for this, once the seed is sown, is abundant and growing. For instance, in terms of the seemingly uniquely draconian ways in which radical climate protesters are now being treated by the law. The tightening constraints on their rights of protest specifically. While, meanwhile, disruption, uh, dysfunction, corruption, incompetence at government and big business levels goes entirely unaddressed, much less so strictly held to account. So what does this mean regarding the dawning conclusions about science and politics? amongst such scientists and climate activists. The growing argument is that, that this shows that science, and here about climate and ecological crisis, has failed to date because it has let itself be insufficiently political. Indeed, actively apolitical, 
sticking to a strategy that was always destined to fail and could at best only secure for science the role of impotent patsy for a power structure that was never going to act seriously on its advice. Science in this model is thus at best the stooge and yes-man, shining the false halo of the powers that be in terms of lending their authority to praise the inadequate plans for climate action uh, and so deluding the public when they should be calling the emperor's new clothes. And at worst, an active source of disinformation and soft denialism, reassuring the public that all is in hand and everything will be okay when that is simply false. And all the more so, given the complacency this position generates and underpins. In contrast, it seems obvious that science now needs to flex its political muscle, explicitly and self-consciously, unapologetically translating its careful, rigorous, small-c conservative findings and projections regarding the changing planet into explicit statements and positions regarding the programs of radical transformation of society that seem logically to be entailed. In other words, science must embrace its political power and not any longer just speak truth to power, but itself enter the power game and take existing power structures on directly. Moreover, once this realisation dawns, it can quickly become profoundly mobilised and further reinforcing. For instance, the truth about the failure of global action to meet scientifically set targets like 1.5 degrees is undoubtedly a crucial condition for the kind of serious practical discussions now needed. A proverbial breaking of the eggs in breaking various tacitly and often self-pleased taboos felt by climate scientists to be relentlessly, the taboo to be relentless, relentlessly positive and to keep hope alive. Being prepared to admit personally and then publicly that one no longer thinks such targets are credible, however, can be experienced as a huge relief and paradoxically a liberation. While very bad news, at least one is no longer also bearing the psychological burden of a position one has come to consider a falsehood. Again, this is important work and a crucial and potentially energising development. And I don't just support such steps, but I am, in fact, personally, actively involved in programmes to encourage them. But this may also go further still, and to an active embrace of the sense of everything falling apart, of active and unstoppable decline, and a conviction that the good scientist today is the one brave enough to face and name this for what it really is. Again, therefore, here we see the call for science to become aligned with particular and radical political programmes and worldviews, and with science thereby set up against other explicitly political perspectives and movements committed to basically any other vision of the future, whether complacently presuming a continuity that now scientifically has been falsified, or 
envisioning new and better futures for humanity, perhaps based on new technological possibilities. It's doom alone that counts, to quote the great Bob Dylan. What is key here, though, is the slow, subtle shift, but ultimately profound repositioning of the common sense understanding of the relationship between science and politics, which is our concern here, underpinned by a sincere concern for minimising harm to the planet and thence to ourselves, as surely is in the best tradition of all critical thinking. Here science has been led from an initial determination to preserve its distinction from politics in order to remain the disinterested, authoritative voice of hard truths that could push us all in the right direction, that is from science in contrast to politics, which is the standard position, and of course the position of the critics I mentioned earlier, through an attempt to get science more actively heard in political discussion and policy making, that is a position of science and politics, or science in politics, to the current position of conviction that science itself needs to be, or rather needs to recognise it has always been, and to stop modestly concealing its glory as a powerful protagonist in its own right, directly participating in the political debate and process, and at all scales, local, national, global. That is, of science as politics. Now, there is much in this line of thought and, with it, painful, angst-ridden experience, or epiphany even, that I agree with, in fact, and that is crucial insight underpinning the broader shift advocated by this podcast regarding a science for the Anthropocene. But such thoughts, while valid in themselves and as far as they go, do not lead to a position that is sustainable, or indeed even just avoids being self-defeating, and so they do not go far enough. And here is where we can pull our threads together regarding those perspicaciously and valiantly still defending the separation of science and politics, aware of what is at stake in that, in that conflation, and ever more evidently and horribly so, on the one hand, and those who have been led equally understandably and committedly through full emotional engagement with the bad news science has for us today to embrace of the collapse of the science and politics distinction. In short, how can both of these positions be right? Indeed, not just right, but crucial and urgent, both of them. The answer in both cases is not to stop thinking and looking and attending, but to push on to higher insights that can accommodate and synthesize both positions. So let us just set these two side by side to consider specifically how they appear, and no doubt believe themselves to be, implacably and directly opposed. The defenders of Enlightenment liberalism argue, convincingly, and with the evidence of the importance of their position growing day by day, 
that the collapse of the science politics or knowledge power distinction is to open up a slippery slope of a broader civilizational process of unstoppable decline in which with science, knowledge, facts, reason, debate now downgraded to just another tool in untrammeled power play between contending interests, modern civilization thereby loses the only, or at least the most powerful sociologically, leash upon a world that is explicitly Hobbesian, even self-consciously celebratory of being such. Power here is raised to be everything, in other words, to explain everything, to constitute everything, to be the only and supreme value, both in practice and soon enough thereafter, merely as a matter of time passing, also in principle. For any attempt to reassert, but what about the facts, is in this world inevitably and necessarily and legitimately even, met with the retort, but whose facts? Supporting what power projects? In other words, the attempt to reassert facts, reason and science is now opened up to the undefeatable riposte that belief in science, faith and reason is itself just an elite political project that is disingenuously concealed behind its gloss of disinterestedness and universality. It is not science then, but white science, male science, Western science, capitalist science, colonial science, etc. A model of science that doesn't have to spell out all those descriptive adjectives beforehand, simply because they are taken for granted in the power structures of that society. So here, science offers no resistance any longer to pure power play and is just another example of it. And so civilization itself here is degraded progressively into its antithesis as the concentration of power for power's sake might really is right or rather now right is merely might. And science itself here becomes the enterprise merely of joining in this war of all against all, using and developing knowledge or ideational weapons. To the well-meaning science as politics climate activist, therefore, this position thus has the powerful and crucial challenge that you may think you are empowering science, by adopting this stance. But you don't know what you are playing with. For politics and power, by definition, are more powerful than reason and science. And this synthesis or fusing cuts both ways. So what you are actually doing is allowing science to be entirely taken over by power, and so destroying science. And your conviction in the rightness of your scientific position, of your cause, only makes that outcome all the more likely and all the more dangerous. In short, an originally scientific cause that lets itself become a political project runs the great risk 
of sliding seamlessly without those involved even noticing into the siren arms of an appetite for self-righteous and increasingly radicalised totalitarianism. The coupling of self-conscious scientific sophistication and political naivety, conceiving a catastrophic toxic movement for society, where science itself drives the actively pursued self-destruction of civilization in the name of saving it. In short, then, the active embrace of the politicization of science is actually a development with significance far beyond the seemingly cloistered world of science. What is at stake, rather, is freedom, reasoned argument, and civilization itself. What about the opposite judgment? In fact, we've already touched on this. To the declamation that we need to reassert and shore up the distinction between science and politics again, the riposte is all too obvious. Namely, it's far too late. The horse has bolted. The secret is out and there is no going back. For who, with eyes to see, and a genuine concern about the future human and non-human life on this planet can sincerely deny that there is not a hugely complex, intimate and inextricable and currently deeply problematic relationship between science, i.e. the specific types of science and technology that is funded and prioritised, and the specific arrangements of political power in the world. To point to even just the most obvious examples, the growing power of billionaire philanthropist-funded science is now shaping whole industries and disciplines of scientific research along specific agendas that, surprise, surprise, resonate strongly with the money-making and further power-accumulating interests of those sponsors. Similarly, with the profound transformation of public discussion precipitated by social media and the internet, it is simply the case now that the line between scientific discussion about facts and political discussion about policy and values and changing societal identities is irreversibly blurred. And perhaps COVID is the most obvious example of this. And then turning to climate specifically, how else but in terms of a much tighter relationship between science and politics can we understand the uniquely allergic reaction of contemporary state apparatuses to lawful protest seeking urgent action on threats that are assessed by science as unprecedented and existential? In other words, even if science and politics could be and maybe even ideally would be kept separate. The politicization of science is now inescapable because politics is now determined to wade in on science, and so science must defend itself. They started it, we might say, by showing their determination to shut down the truth science is speaking, since it now clashes with the preferred worldviews and commitments and interests of existing political institutions and power structures. 
So if science is being presented with the Hobson's choice of say only what and as much as we want to hear and how or shut up by the summits of power politics, then science has no option but to accept the challenge and the changed terms of that relationship and fight back in kind, straying in equal and opposite fashion into the world of politics. For how else can the urgent truths about the imminent and now fast unfolding planetary crisis be kept alive and in the public gaze? In short, the active refusal to blur science politics boundaries and only instead to police that boundary ever more harshly and then on what and on whose definitions is actually not to save science either but to incarcerate it, to demean it with the public trust in its honesty at stake and thereby any hope of timely action on ecological emergency. Embrace the politicisation of science, therefore, and we jeopardise the key contribution of science to modern civilization and its further advancement for the good of all. But deny it and insist on the strict distinction of science and politics, and instead we risk willful and increasingly authoritarian blindness to unprecedented challenges of planetary change that science alone can inform us about. Is this then Catch-22? Damned if we do, damned if we don't. A double bind, to use Gregory Bateson's insightful terminology. Well, yes, it is. But only if we accept existing definitions of science and of politics, and even more clearly, of knowledge and of power. And then, relatedly, if we explore and conceptualise the relation of these two terms, both explicitly when actively thinking about them and tacitly in practice in the back of our minds, in purely binary terms regarding these two terms alone. In other words, if we think exclusively in terms of science, knowledge on the one hand, and politics, power on the other, to the exclusion of all other possible and or related terms. Now, however commonplace and presumed such thinking is, and especially when first giving this relation concerted attention, this is very much not the only option open to us, and we can go into the predicament that we are now facing regarding the relationship of science and politics. We can go through it. We can open it up. This, in other words, is where more thinking more exploration is possible and urgently needed versus both of the unsustainable and seemingly opposed positions just considered. That is, of science versus politics on the one hand and science as politics on the other. So what does this further thinking look like? Well, let's start by recognising that what we are looking at here is the relation the relationship between science and politics, between knowledge and power. And that relation is itself, therefore, a third term. Here we can bring our attention as a practice, both individual and collective, 
to the whole of that relation, and thence the collective and broader whole emergent from and expressive of that process, which let us call civilization. And this broader whole then subsume and includes both in terms of there being no civilization without both first power relations and secondly knowledge knowledge that is accepted as to all intents and purposes true and with these as complementary and mutually dependent not any longer opposed let us take these two in turn first the power relations these need to be power relations capable of actually building in the first place and then sustaining and repairing and evolving complex systems that enable diverse and perhaps unprecedented forms of flourishing note here however how such a conception of power relations has also inescapably shifted the default understanding of power and politics from the relentless pursuit of self-interest and aggrandizement in zero-sum power over others, that is, of the presumed identification of power and domination or coercion. Rather, power has here been reconceptualized as constitutive of the human social world, including our own social identities. That is, it is relational and ubiquitous if asymmetrically distributed. This tacit reconceptualization of power is thus, in fact, the first key step so often missed by both the newly energized critics and the newly radicalized proponents of the fusion of science and politics, of power and knowledge, that Foucault is supposed to be the scion of. For at least as I read him, Foucault's various explorations of the complex and intimate relationship between knowledge and power, which we might also add, evolved and developed and matured considerably in his own works, simply do not make sense absent this crucial shift in understanding of what power itself is. As such, to the extent someone holds fast to their pre-existing common sense understanding of power as power of one over another, while reading or even just hearing secondhand about Foucault's ideas regarding the problematization of the relationship between uh, all the binary of power and knowledge, science and politics, they will inescapably have misunderstood him and will be forced into a position that confronts them with an impossible choice. Either embrace the fusion of politics and science that he is supposedly act advocating and so become implacably, unhingedly radicalised since now science is only power with the result that good science is science that is always already subscribed to by my side of the political contestation in question, or reject that fusion altogether and reject that blurring wholesale 
and become instead a radicalized defender of their distinction. That is, politically defending science from politics, which is an equally untenable and immediately self-defeating position. And this is, of course, exactly what we now see playing out. As I have stressed throughout this discussion, no one should now underestimate how dangerous and consequential this Hobson's choice is. Indeed, a generation plus after Foucault's latest work, the full stakes at play are now finally before us. But precisely as an impossible choice, and one founded on a failure to engage sufficiently deeply with the reconceptualization of power itself, which is Foucault's primary goal and challenge for himself and his readers. There is but one option before us. Do that deeper thinking and escape the trap that our shallow thinking has set for us. Indeed, to be polemical, I would go so far as to say that, at least in his closing works, Foucault is himself the very apogee of a defender of liberalism. Yes, a rebased, expanded, updated liberalism, relevant for a knowledge society, but of liberalism nonetheless. That is, of the liberalism that his current voluble critics themselves claim to be defending from him. So the first step needed is this reconceptualization of power. But the second step is then to return to and reclaim and rehabilitate science, or more specifically, reason argument and construction of widely accepted truths through publicly accountable, evidence-informed debate. What we need here, though, is powerful techniques, understood and accepted and themselves reflexively debated and shaped, that enable the continual creative learning process that progressively illuminates what flourishing means for that power then to be directed and continually redirected towards that goal. Here, in other words, we are first directed back to the essence, what distinguishes it from other ways of thinking and looking of science, as a particular disciplined way of looking and seeing. Not any specific pre-existing body of substantive beliefs and commitments, though, of course, particular bodies of insights and facts and theories are inevitably built up and become themselves powerful platforms for further such thinking and doing. Say what you see as a summary of science, though, albeit far too crude, is both a welcome clarification of the value and even the specific and invaluable virtue of science and its unique contribution, and thereby a restatement of what it alone brings to human civilizational progress that both presumes no specific worldview and, conversely, distinguishes it from the self-interested construction of ideational weapons and tools for mere power play. In short, here we are appreciating science, not by siding with science against politics, but by attending to its unique and crucial contribution 
to the directing of civilizational advancement, that is, from this bigger perspective. We are reattuning to science as a crucial element of a bigger project of value and collective flourishing, which incorporates but is not exhausted by science, or, for that matter, politics. This, rather, is an agenda of building personal and collective capacities for the practice and honing and realization of wisdom, collective flourishing and value, and the structures that provide the opportunities to be educated in them. But note how, when self-consciously shifted to this bigger agenda, power and knowledge, politics and science, are, or rather are now acknowledged to be, in a new set of relations that neither conflates them catastrophically nor is determined, however unsustainably, whether politically or philosophically or, it turns out, environmentally, to keep them separate. Rather, there is now not only not an unsolvable opposition between politics and science, but instead a creatively tense mutual presupposition and interdependence amongst them. For power without knowledge is blind and directionless and very likely amoral, if not immoral, while knowledge without power is empty and impotent and so very likely radicalised and impractical in its ethereal abstraction. Stepping up to the perspective of the pragmatic, strategic flourishing of civilization and cultivation of the strategic ethical wisdom or phrenesis that has been discussed previously on this podcast and will be discussed again in forthcoming episodes, in other words, enables us to shift from a position where we must choose between two catastrophic misunderstandings of the relationship between science and politics. That is, between effectively choosing civilization against the planet or planet against civilization, and to a new position where we may now begin to act including in our scientific explorations, as part of the solution. Indeed, a few further closing reflections on this point. First, the programme laid out here involves the refounding of the relationship of power and knowledge, politics and science, within a greater whole of orientation to wisdom and civilization. Here then, science is preserved and strengthened paradoxically, by first thinning it out and affirming it as a mere means or specific way of looking and thinking. Or to put it slightly differently, a new and mutually productive relationship between knowledge and power becomes possible only once we accept and acknowledge how they are different kinds of things, not just different things. For then the omnipresence and irreducibility of power relations shaping all forms of learning and construction of new insights and knowledge claims in no way defeats the resulting outputs as knowledge and even truths. Rather, power is the substance, knowledge the form, to use a metaphor I find helpful. 
but a lump of clay is no more a bowl, let alone an exquisite Ming Dynasty vase, than the abstract shape of a bowl will hold your breakfast. With this division of civilizational labor clarified, though, we can also begin to go further with that in terms of reflexively applying these respective tasks to an explicit agenda of taking greater responsibility for civilization and for the planet per se, and learning to live together well. For politics, therefore, the task here becomes the simple commitment to that goal as the primary value and orientation of power contestation and its creativity. For science, though, and therefore for a science for the Anthropocene, that is the primary concern of this podcast, these disciplines of seeing and thinking can and should themselves be applied to specific questions of how to do civilization well and ever better. In short, we need a new meta-science of civilization, what it is, how it works and fails, its capacities and its limits, a substantive agenda for a science for the Anthropocene. But this leads us to see the biggest problems with the new zealous determination to keep science and politics as entirely distinct, which is that only once we first admit that knowledge and power, science and politics, are intimately related somehow, can we then admit, in turn, that science and knowledge and the propagation of ideas and higher education of the next generation of our society's leaders are all extremely powerful. They are sites of enormous power and influence and consequence. And so then we can also begin to take seriously the responsibility for that power and the wielding of it. For instance, by fashioning a specific arrangement and set of mores regarding such higher learning, an ongoing generation of new ideas that is expressive of the highest possible goals for collective flourishing. And this may include, possibly, the decision that a relative separation of science and politics serves that programme best. And this points us to another key problem, which is that the current defenders of the science-politics distinction are absolutely not wrong that that distinction is precious. But they are wrong that it is simply a given truth, a natural and objective fact. Rather, it is a precious achievement. And hence, with all that entails, in terms of all the collective hard work and preconditions, for example, of relatively stable mutual and public trust, that have likely been built up laboriously and at great cost over decades and centuries. It is a precious achievement for knowledge and power to be relatively distinct, tasked differently and as potentially complementary, not folded on in on each other and condensed as one and the same thing. And it is a precious achievement for them to be seen thus and to be expected to be separate. And that achievement thus needs equally effortful commitment and defence and repair and maintenance as a crucial legacy and responsibility from generation to generation. 
and one that, like all things of value, is hard and often fortuitous to build, but easy to destroy, and then harder still to rebuild. But admitting all this is impossible if we stay thinking purely in terms of science politics as a binary. Only if we admit our always presupposed third, that is, of the higher values of collective flourishing, of wisdom, and of the civilization expressive and enabling of it, do we have ground on which to stand in order to first see the distinction of knowledge and power, then assert its value and importance, and finally act to preserve and secure it. For knowledge and science may be a tool, and power and politics its material, what it works with in order to create something great, or, of course, something terrible. But to pursue this picture a bit further, a tool and material together still actually make nothing. That is, without a user or a handler or a master of that tool, preferably even a master craftsman. And the bitter truth, now clear for all to see, is that if there is not a self-conscious orientation to the higher values of collective flourishing, to cultivation of wisdom and the growth of civilization, then there is a willing interloper always ready to step in and commandeer that tool. That is, power, the material itself. Hence, in that case, the tendency to comparatively rapid descent in the quality of ideas, as power uses science to empower and grow itself for itself. In other words, unless and until we have a self-consciously situated science in service of civilization, the tendency will be for a science in service of politics. And whether that is politics of the status quo or a revolutionary politics of total destruction of that status quo, in both cases, it is still a science serving might is right. The paradoxical result of all this, though, is that while the radicalised celebration of the conflation of power and knowledge is most obviously and directly contrary to a programme of, of a science for civilization a science for the Anthropocene. The determined but one-eyed defence of their total separation is simply the flip side of exactly the same coin. Setting up and in fact continually refueling the righteous rejection of that separation, which is the conflationist's primary source of dynamism. So here finally we see how, in defence of a science, against politics and its takeover. This connects intimately and inescapably with the agenda of a science for the Anthropocene. And relatedly, how we can and must address these inextricably political issues regarding contemporary knowledge politics. Issues, again, I stress, that I am extremely loath to touch on precisely because they are seemingly so distant from our primary concern on this podcast, and as we are doing so in the name of preserving the distinct focus of this podcast on science, its renewal and the great 
and unique contribution it specifically has to make to humanity's rising to the challenges of the 21st century. So we need a new meta-science of civilization. Secondly, though, and for such a new science to take off, it is crucial that the preconditions of deploying such a scientific gaze with a view to supporting the growth of civilization and practical wisdom are both increasingly themselves illuminated and then progressively adopted in practice in the prosecution of that very science. In other words, while earlier I stripped science back to the simple and simplistic imperative to say what you see, here it becomes clear that science as a purely disembodied and cognitive enterprise of the objective gaze is a cipher and an impossibility. And crucially, a fatal wrong turn, an impossible stance for any project of building a progressively illuminating and practically constructive science of civilization. Finally, and crucially, and returning us to our starting point regarding the clear and present dangers today regarding the contributions, positive and potentially massively negative, of science and scholarship and higher learning to the crisis of civilization we are now in, this age of fractal war across scales. We can already now see and identify quite clearly one of the reorientations, or rather fuller re-specifications of science that are needed today, if it is to be a productive and responsible agent in the world. Namely, that it demands of the individual scientist their teams, colleagues and disciplines and our broader institutions of research an explicit commitment to be mindful of the potentially enormous responsibility and power of the ideas we are developing and propagating in our writing and in our classrooms, including the pernicious idea itself that knowledge is only domination in disguise. This thus demands an explicit training in the ethics of work with ideas that is a significant departure both for the natural scientists who have long enjoyed the get-out clause of I'm just discussing reality and social sciences for whom the equivalent escape is ideas critical of existing society illuminating political contestations can only promote a more thoughtful and demanding citizenry. Indeed, in these two positions, we have the seeds of the polarised politics of science and indeed of society, that is, of the now knowledge society in which we live, that this whole discussion has been framed by. But in both cases, these excuses no longer hold and so finally we return to the ultimate problem with the existing common sense framings of science and politics. Because both within the academy, stereotypically in the distinction between natural and physical and social science disciplines, and spilling over now into society more broadly, both of these positions of science against politics and of science as politics are, to repeat, both inadequate and dysfunctional in themselves, 
then driving the deepening exposure and exacerbation of each other's weaknesses, and so, in total, cultivating a broader crisis in all of the actual phenomena these terms represent, that is, in science itself and public trust in it, in politics and public trust in that, and thence in civilization itself as a tacitly presumed third. This is where we are now headed, insofar as we remain in the absence of any other new and productive ways to conceptualize the pressing problems of our time, pressing problems that presuppose adequate and productive meanings and practices of science and politics. There is no solving climate change without science, but equally there is no solving it with a science that is part of the problem. So what all this signals is that we really need an en masse, not just to begin rethinking the relation of science and politics, to accept this is a crucial issue that is very much not settled at present, and to begin to do that rethinking in new, ethically sensitized ways, but also to do that in order to reach new and resettled senses of the meanings and interrelations of these terms that are capable then of supporting productive and growing feedback loops of dynamic restabilization of civilization. A civilization now thoroughly situated in science, technology, and its world creative powers. A science that is actively changing from being a major part of the source of current destabilization and dysfunction of civilization, of the crises of the Anthropocene, from being a science of the Anthropocene and a science generating the Anthropocene, to being a science for the Anthropocene and in the Anthropocene. And as I said earlier, that is our specific agenda for the series of podcasts now scheduled through 2024, in which we will be focusing specifically on two major themes, namely science for planetary boundaries, the central concept of the Anthropocene and its popularization as a term, and the reorganization of science facing crises in the politics of knowledge and of science, and further clarification of what this phrenesis or strategic ethical wisdom actually means in this context. So please join us again for what I'm sure will be fascinating discussions with an excellent set of speakers. Thank you for listening. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, please tell just one friend about it. Until next time, goodbye.